All right, thank you. So we, we ended last week pretty much uh, with verse 9, to be on your guard for they will <clears throat> deliver you over to the councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. So, And we, we kind of stopped really talking about persecution at this time and he was directly talking to the, the disciples there, but I mentioned Second Timothy 3.12 all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And we kind of talked about that, and that's, that's where we ended. But the book of Revelation also reveals really the, the worst persecution in history that's going to occur just before Jesus comes back. And, you know, the animosity towards God at that time is, and towards the gospel just really, really, really intensifies under the leadership of the Antichrist. And I remember years ago, I was on a, a church visitation visit, and, and I made this statement. My, my thinking is totally different now, but this is what I said. Uh, we were sitting around this couple's kitchen table, and, and I said, you know, if God would just peel back the heavens for 30 seconds and allow the world to see what's really going on in the heavenlies, everybody would bow their knee and, and get saved, Right. But that's not true because as you, as I've looked at Revelation some this week and studying this, this, I mean, the earth is in, in just havoc and, and, and it's God's wrath being poured out and, you know, Volkswagen sized hailstones falling from the sky and crushing people and they're not bowing the knee, are they? They're just shaking their fists and blaspheming the very one that can save them. So look with me real quick, turn to Revelation chapter 6. I've got a lot of scripture this week to look at, but we don't, you don't have to turn to all of them, but um, just to get an idea of, of this persecution that's going to occur when Jesus returns, and, and John gives us an account of this in Revelation 6, 9 through 11. Revelation 6, 9 says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and the brothers should be complete who were killed as they themselves had been. So in spite, you know, this, you see salvation still taking place, even all this wrath of God being poured out. But many people are headed straight for destruction during this time as well. And in spite of the opposition and the persecution, Jesus promises a message of salvation will continue to spread throughout the earth, throughout the world. And, you know, they're being hauled in before judges will, 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 he's telling the disciples, you coming before the judges of the world is going to result in preaching of the gospel. And he says in verse 10, uh, back in Mark 13, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. The word must there really stresses the will of God. Because it's God who has decreed that the gospel must be preached to all nations. And I started down a path this week, I think maybe it was last week, of looking at some mission studies and I gave up on it. I just said, I can't start going there. I, you know, um, 
that was too long of a rabbit trail, but we, we, we can kind of look at that, though, and could we come to, let me ask it this way, could we come to the conclusion today that that has happened, that the gospel has been preached to all nations? What do you think? No? Because uh-uh. I think you've got to really look at the word there, and I know some places, Daniel's been there as well, there's some of those villages in that Cotahuasi Canyon that have not heard the gospel. You know, so that that's still taking place today, and uh, of course the uh, the Southern Baptists have done a good job with um, their mission studies, and uh, the 1040 window, you know, is an area that um, does not have a gospel presence right now as well. So we could, you know, you know, I would encourage you if you're interested in that kind of thing to do some just Google uh, or go to the Southern Baptist. Um, uh, why am I drawing a blank? What's the mission group? The North American, not the North American one, the uh, IMB, there you go, the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptists, and they've got tons of data there that you can look at to show how this is going. Uh, and, you know, hopefully, you know, that will inspire somebody um, to, you know, I would love for us as an elder of your church to, um, for us to send out a missionary to an unreached people group. That'd be awesome. So if God's calling any of y'all, um, we can pray together about that. So this is Jesus' mandate to his disciples and through them to us, the church today, that we're still to be doing that. And he, and he says first there, and the gospel must first be proclaimed. And I, I think what he's saying is before the end. So would it be unreasonable to say if you want the end to come quicker, then Let's go preach more. more. Right. Let's go to some of these places. Right. Um, You know, I think what Jesus is trying to to get us to understand today here is that instead of looking for the signs of the end, let's get busy and spread the good news. That's the quicker way. What if you were the guy or the woman that shared the gospel with the last one of the elect? You know, that'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? They accept Christ as their Savior, and then off you go, right? If the rapture takes place at that that point. You know, I used to know a missionary overseas, and whenever we would depart, he was in Romania, and whenever we would depart, we'd say, all right, see you later, and he'd say, see you here, there, or in the air. You know, <laughs> if we can wave across as we're going, but uh, I don't know how that's going to work, but Jesus seems to be saying, though, instead of looking for signs, let's get busy preaching. And here we are 2,000 years into church history, and there have been lots of assaults, right, on the gospel. There's been lots of assaults on spreading the good news to all the nations. But even in the tribulation period, the church being raptured, we're gone. The Antichrist is wreaking havoc all over the world, but Jesus is still has, still has witnesses here spreading the gospel. Lots of them. There's going to be 144,000 believing Jews. There's going to be, that's in Revelation 7 and 8. And there's going to be, in 14, there's going to be two resurrected witnesses that are going to be sharing the news. That's in Revelation 11. An angel from heaven who continually proclaims the gospel of salvation in Revelation 14. They're the people that are saved, if they aren't killed yet, they will be here spreading the news as well. So, you know, there's going to be lots of witness even during the tribulation time. Well, after telling them of their 
coming persecution, he gives them a personal promise in verse 11. He says, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. So that's a great promise, isn't it? That the, the real speaker in these horrible persecution type situations is going to be the Holy Spirit speaking through them. So do we at this time have that power. I mean, of course, we're all indwelt with the Holy Spirit, but I I personally believe that, you know, if we had that gift of the Spirit right now, we'd be so puffed up with pride, our heads wouldn't fit through that door right there, right? I think God, at the right moment, through intense times of persecution, gives us what to say. Matter of fact, that's kind of another... um, advertisement for scripture memory, right? Because, you know, likely you're not going to have the Bible with you when you're being persecuted. Well, how are you going to speak God's word? Well, if it's written in your heart, then you'll have it there. Have y'all had any situations like that? Not maybe persecution, but situations in your life where you know that walking into it, you didn't have a clue what you were going to do or say, but then it just starts flowing. Has that ever happened to you? What is that? You know, what causes that? What do you think? Or share a situation if you've got one of where you know that <clears throat> it wasn't you. You know, maybe you were uh, not prepared. You know, a lot of witnessing opportunities are prepared, but there's a lot that aren't prepared, right? Where does that come from? From the Holy Spirit, right? But has anybody got one instance in particular you would share on that? Um what do you think? Well, I, I had a guy just pick me out of the crowd at Chipotle last week to buy my lunch for me. And so cool. uh, I was able to uh, share a little bit with him, get a track, and share with him his wife a little bit. Good. And did he give a reason for picking you out? He just said he picks people out at random. And yeah. He just picked me out this time. I guess that's the Holy Spirit drawing him to me. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And the fact that you were prepared to share yeah what else anybody else got one yes ma'am this is a guest that we have today with us from um, from Todd and Lisa's neighborhood um, Bernadette is that Beatrice. Beatrice got it almost right Beatrice <laughs> yeah <laughs> you had to be right yes ma'am She was accusing me of um, not wanting the business to make profit because there are things she would tell me not not to do. And my conscience, I'm like, this is about life. I have to teach this person this, and he or she has to get this done. And I have to write the order for the doctor to approve it so that he or she can get it done. And she would tell me to leave off certain things. And I'm like, if I'm the patient, what would I want somebody to do for me? So 
So one day, something happened. I can't even remember exactly. She dragged me before the DON. So we were talking. And um, I just said, when she accused me of that before the DON, I told the DON, Director of Nursing, if we do the right thing, God will bless the business. That was how it ended. And Good. Well, good. Yeah, that's, I mean, God gives us, I think, the words and the boldness to use those words when we need to. And we see that. We'll look at an instance here in, in a second in, in Scripture. But, you know, the, the real speaker in those situations is the Holy Spirit. And I'm glad because I would want to cower, right, and not do it. And, but, the, you know, the, the, the disciples' calm, self-possessed attitude in the time of perse- persecution made them tremendous witnesses, right? And the, this really started with the examples of, of Peter and John, who after being arrested for preaching in the temple, they addressed the Sanhedrin with supernatural courage and confidence. Courage and confidence. And if you want to look at uh, Acts chapter 4, I'll read uh, Acts 4, verses 8 through 13. Uh, it says, uh, Then Peter... Filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized them, recognized that they had been with Jesus. That's, that's the best credentials in the world, is it not? I mean, these were, were common, uneducated men, and they were recognized by the rulers of the people and the elders as being having been with Jesus. The power and the confidence of being indwelt by the Spirit gave them the, um, the boldness to, to speak out properly. And uh, Paul explained to Timothy after appearing uh, on trial to the Roman Emperor Nero in 2 Timothy 4.17, he wrote this, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. You know, so Paul teaches, shows us that. We see it in Acts with, um, with Peter and John. Jesus adds that the persecution to his followers would face both throughout church history and the final tribulation would frequently include family. And, and, you know, that's, that's tough, is it not? That it would include family because, you know, I mean, after all, those are our, you know, biological brothers and sisters, moms and dads. But look at back in Mark 13, verses uh, 12 and 13. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. 
but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, we hear of this going on today, don't we? People converting from the Muslim faith to Christianity. I uh, Years ago, probably 20 years ago, I heard a guy, a, a guy that was an ex, um, I, I think, uh, oh gosh, what really, he was from India, um, and he was, I think he was a Buddhist, um, and um, he shared, he's a Christian now, and he shared his testimony, and he, it, I couldn't believe it, you know, this was his family, he was marked as, he was an extremely intelligent guy, finished their version of high school at, at a very, very young age and was kind of pegged by that religion to be a, a you know, a, a priest or whatever the hierarchy they have. They paid for his education in the university and this second year, I think it was in the university, he and one of his friends went home for a, va- a holiday, they called it, uh, for a few weeks and there was a Christian evangelist in their town and um, he he went on to t- talk about uh, all the, I, I'm pretty sure he said that they had 350,000 different gods in India, all right? And, I, and then his, his family's god was a king cobra. This thing, they had a little box for it over in the corner like that coffee service box over there, but it was open. The snake had free reign of the house. If you got bit... You were had uh, was just a sign that you'd done something against the God, and the snake bit you, right? And so he believed this, and so somebody said, "Well, how did you guys get the snake to be your God?" And he said, "Well, his dad was when he was a young boy. His dad was out in the fields uh, re- uh, reaping his harvest, and he he got it all chopped, but he didn't have enough time to get it all home." And if you didn't stand guard over it overnight, somebody would steal it. So his dad slept on the ground next to the harvest. And when he awoke in the morning, there was a king cobra standing up over him. And his theory was the snake protected him all night. So somehow he captured the thing without getting bit and brought it home. That was their God. So now he's at the university learning all this hierarchy of their faith. And they come home and there's an evangelist there. And he and his buddy decided they were going to kill the guy. They were going to stone him to death. So they, they went that evening to the event, and they had these big coats on, rocks in their pockets, and they were going to wait till it was over when he was by himself. Well, he ended up, the Lord saved him during that guy's preaching, you know, and, he, and the whole village turned against him and, and kicked him out of the village. He got kicked out of the university, and, um, you know, but now he's a church planner in India, and He's since married and has children, and um, his kids' names, the oldest is Calvin, the youngest is Spurgeon. That's what he named his kids, that's great. But, but, you know, that kind of stuff goes on in our world today. We don't hear much of it here in the United States, right? But it does. Christ's followers must be willing to endure persecution from their closest friends and even family members. And, you know, it may... It may include death. I I pulled a couple of examples from the Voice of the Martyrs. Y'all ever heard of that ministry? Here's This is just April. A young woman required an emergency C-section after an April 15th attack by Hindu radicals on the full gospel church. All believers worshipped that evening. I'm sorry, as believers worshipped that evening, members of the 
group, I can't pronounce the name of the Hindu group, rushed into the room and tried to stop the service. The, the Hindu radicals shouted at the pastor, cursed the Christians, and told them they would be killed if they continued to pray. When the Christians ignored them and continued to pray and sing, the radicals began attacking the crowd. In the scuffle, a 27-year-old pregnant woman was shoved roughly to the ground. The conflict dissipated when the persecutors left, and the young woman was rushed to the hospital. Uh, She was treated for pain and high blood pressure when she was still struggling with pain. A week later, she returned to the doctor who told her the baby was in critical condition. After an emergency C-section, she gave birth to a premature but healthy baby girl. Both mother and baby are now doing well. The conflict between the church and this group began only recently. There are 80 families living in the village. Fifteen of them are Christians. The village families have been working alongside each other for the past 30 years peaceably. Persecution began just last month, so that would have been in March, when the group began to visit every day. The group are a subsidiary of the RSS political movement, a Hindu group that advocates for an all-Hindu Indian nation. So I guess that wasn't Buddhist before they were Hindu in that guy's story I told you. India's current government has close ties to the RSS and local Hindu radicals have been increasing their purification activities throughout India over the last several years. The, the group told the believers in the village that the families needed to convert back to Hinduism. They threatened to exclude the families from community water, food, and other benefits, including health care. Now, when you know, men in the room, if you're farming and they say, you know, you're not getting water, you know, is that real? Can that happen? You know, yeah. Oh, I mean, that's real. Your family's going to starve to death, right? Are you going to let them? You know, that's modern day persecution. And as we said last week, this is all going to increase as we get closer and closer and closer as, as this is unfolding. Another one, um, a uh, pastor in um, China was brutally murdered on April 30th. So this one was killed. Actually, he was born in China, pastored a church in North, on the North Korean border and helped countless North Koreans come to know Christ, left behind a wife, a son, and a daughter. He reportedly left his church building at 2 p.m. on April 30th. His body, mangled beyond recognition, was discovered at 8 p.m., He'd been repeatedly stabbed in his stomach and his head had been hacked with an axe. All of his personal belongings, including his cell phone, were stolen. He is believed to have been killed by the North Koreans who likely returned to North Korea following the attack. So, you know, it just goes on and on. That's just two examples very recently. Well, we got to remember that the reason that the world hates believers is because why? It hates Jesus, right? John tells us, uh, Jesus explained that, I'm sorry, in John 15, where he says, Jesus speaking, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would, would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Right, so then he tells the disciples here in Mark, he gives them another great promise, as he always does, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Right? Does this mean that salvation is earned through perseverance? No. How do we know that? 
Because then that would make our salvation contingent on our works, right? And I've got a bunch of verses here. We're not going to look at them, but we all agree, right? The New Testament repeatedly denies that works save us. Well, it also doesn't mean that you can lose your salvation, right? Scripture tells us that we can't. And that, that we really, really need to understand that because I, uh, I counseled with a man and his wife one time years ago, and this guy believed that you could. And um, he, he was actually a pastor, and he was involved in pornography. And um, so I finally just asked him one day, well, let me ask you, when you're involved in watching your pornography, have you lost it at that point? You know, well, that's how he was justifying it. Well, I'm not saved, so I can do this. Then he would repent and get back right with God, you know, and he wouldn't be doing it. You know, I'm going to look at it again. Okay, I'm losing it, you know. And I just thought, wow, what a way to live. You know, what happens if you die when you don't have it? You know, um, but a lot of people um, justify their sin in, in the thinking that, you know, you can, it doesn't mean that. You can't lose your salvation. And, you know, I think to me, the, the, Personally, for me, the number one um, comforting fact that I have that I can't lose my salvation is because I'm not the one that got it for me anyway, right? God did this. And John 6 does a great example of Jesus saying, you know, anyone that the Father gives me will come and nobody will snatch them out of my hands. So we are secure in his hands. We can't lose our salvation. Um, what he's doing here is reiterating the fact that those who endure suffering for his sake <clears throat> demonstrate that they're genuine believers. The genuine believers will have that and, and they'll suffer for his sake. But uh, it also means um, that those who fall away during times of persecution, what? Never really had saving faith, right? And Way back in Mark chapter 4, the parable of the sowers, right? That, that's taught there, right? But endure, those who endure for a while, then when the tribulation or persecution arises on account of the world, immediately they fall away. They never really had the faith. Somebody that, that has completely abandoned the faith never had the faith, right? Now, can you <clears throat> fall into a pattern of sin in your life? Sure, right? But you won't be happy there, right? Um, you know, I often wondered, well, um, let me say it this way. Um, up until salvation in my life, late in life at 38, some of you that's probably not real late in life, but, <laughs> um, you know, I had started so many things, quit so many things. You know, I promise, Kit, I won't drink anymore. I promise. You know, one day, two, well, she won't know. You know, I was a quitter. You know, I could never stick to, I had no stick to itiveness. Is that even a word? But then the Lord saved me, and here we are, you know, all these years later. And it's, if it were up to me, I would have quit just like I quit everything else. You know, when people come to know the Lord now, a lot of their friends will say, oh, he, he, he found God as if God was lost and needed finding, you know, and, and he'll, he'll, he'll be back. He'll be back with us. You just watch, just watch. I've seen all these guys go through this. They get in trouble with their wives or the law, and they find God, you know. And, but the true believer 
will endure to the end. And it's not me. You know, when I first started understanding the doctrines of grace, the P and the tulip, the perseverance of the saints, I thought, oh boy, I got to grind it out. I got to persevere. No, that's God does that, right? And that's a blessing. To me, it is, you know, because again, if it were up to me, I would have quit a long time ago. But John also gives us a strong warning in 1 John two nineteen, And this is a scary one to me. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that, that it might become plain that they are all not of us. So true believers keep going through thick and thin. And, you know, I'm not saying it's going to be easy. Anybody that says, I had that misconception as a young new believer too. Oh, here's the rose-colored glasses. Put them on. Everything will be high and by pie in the sky. And then the first trial that comes in your life, oh, no, you know, that's not... It's hard sometimes, is it not? Especially if you're being persecuted by family and friends. So, you know, we should all pray that we finish well. I found a little poem by Robertson McQuilkin. He's uh, retired now, and uh, he may be dead. I don't know, but he's the president of Columbia International University and Seminary. Listen to this poem on this topic of finishing well. That I should end before I finish, or finish but not well, that I should stain your honor, shame your name, grieve your loving heart. Few, they tell me, finish well. Lord, let me get home before dark. Isn't that good? I mean, that should be our goal, to finish well through the thick and thin. So now um, moving into Jesus is kind of in verse 13, he's finished personally addressing his disciples, and he's getting really ready. Well, he didn't finish addressing them, but he's, he's getting really, he's ready now to finally answer their question from verse 4 of tell us when these things be and what will be the sign. And in verse 14, he says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in, who in are in Judea, flee the mountain. So um, the rapture of the church is not taught in this passage. Jesus does not address it. I believe that the, personally, the, the way I understand the scriptures, that the rapture will take place prior to this event. And But he's telling, telling us what the real answer of when this stuff's all going to take place is when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. The afflictions, as we've said over and over last week and this week, that this world has experienced up to this present time, today, here we are, are merely previews of the unparalleled destruction that will, in, that will come shortly before Christ returns. These are previews, and they're like labor pains, as we said last week. They get more severe and more often, and you know, I, I guess you, you really, though, you know, you could say that throughout history. Every generation has said, it's got to be now. How could it get any worse, right? And we're certainly there ourselves now, are we not? You know, but if you really look at how history is unfolding, you, you can really get a great picture of what God's doing. And that gives me comfort, right? Because then I know that no matter how wacky it seems to be out there, well, God's sovereign, and it looks like it's happening just like he said it would happen. I read, uh, I, I was telling Tim Tarchik this. I was supposed to email him this, and I didn't. Forgive me, brother. But 
I read an article by John MacArthur recently that how he shows uh, the um, how the Muslim faith is just lining up. I mean, it is flat lining up perfectly with Revelation and and the end times with the beast and the Antichrist. I mean, it it was making the hair on the back of my neck stand up reading this, you know, and and it, it's just interesting to see how precise. The Bible really is when you when you start looking at it like that. But we're not going to dive into all that because, um, again, the, the church is gone at this point. We've been raptured, but we need to understand what the Lord's talking about here. So the afflictions are, are going to continue to get more frequent and more severe. At the time of the tribulation, it's going to be universal devastation. The wrath of God will be unleashed on the earth, right? Um it also is going to be a time of, of evil, really, that hasn't ever been seen because of right now there's a restraining power of the Holy Spirit against the demonic forces of this world. Yes, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. Yes, God has given him reign over the earth right now. But even with all of those things said and all the evil that we see, Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2 that there is a restraining power of the Holy Spirit on him. So if you think it's bad now, there's more to come, right? It's going to be worse. So um, for the sake of time, well, let's read that. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 7. It says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. There's that deception again. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in this time, in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. So... Again, God's grace in restraining him to his full effect at this point in time. Uh, Revelation 9, 1 through 6 shows us again uh, how this demonic activity really, really, really ramps up at this point in time. But even though that's going on, and even though the church has been raptured, there are still there's still going to be the gospel being preached to the unbelievers that are left behind. And we looked at the, the, those a second ago of the, the, um, the 144,000 and so forth. So he describes the sign to the disciples uh, that they had asked for in verse 4 when they said, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all things are about to be accomplished. They were eagerly, here they are again, eagerly, hoping that he would quickly establish his earthly kingdom. Their views were of the future were still completely way off base. They were still way too Jewish 
So after explaining the, the initial birth pains, he shifts his focus to a major event that will notify everyone that now you are in the time of the final tribulation. And that's verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand. When he says when you see there, that means looking forward to a definite observable event. All right? I mean, there's not going to be any question that this is going on. Matthew's account tells us that uh, it says the abomination of desolation that w- was that which was spoken of through Daniel. So abomination, uh, you know, when, when you read that, just does it trip you up a little bit? Like, what in the world is that? It did me, you know. So what does that mean? What is an abomination? What do you think? Something, what? This abomination is standing, so it's a person, but repulsive to God. Yeah, it's something detestable, foul, immoral, disgusting, right? Hated by God. And then desolation. What does that mean? Now, that's the effect produced by this abomination that's taking place, right? Causing something to be deserted, left desolate, right? So this is a person that's detestable to God that's leaving the temple desolate. In other words, the only one there, right? When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. So Mark leaves the place. He doesn't tell us where that is. Matthew tells us standing in the holy place, the sacred sanctuary itself. There he is. So the book of Daniel, as Matthew tells us, it actually mentions the abomination of desolation three times. The first one is in 927. I'll read these three for you. It says, And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for a half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolate ore. Daniel 11:31 Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Daniel 12:11 And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up there shall be 1290 days. So we know historically that Daniel 11.31 describes an event that happened uh, about 150 years before Jesus was standing there on the Mount of Olives with his disciples. And this was the time when Antiochus Epiphanes, which means, does anybody know what that name means? It means manifest God. You might have a problem if, you, <laughs> if your name is manifest lower G God, Right. And, and he conquered Jerusalem, and he controlled it from 175 to 165 B.C. He desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar. Remember how we talked about the temple when Jesus went in and looked around back in chapter 11, and you know the, all the sacrifices and everything that was taking place there. So there's a high pinnacle of worship for the Jews, and this guy comes in and sacrifices a pig on the altar right? Uh, forcing the priest to eat its meat, and also they erected a, a, an idol of Zeus. So forcing a Jewish priest to eat pig, I mean, is that pretty severe? 
you know, that was against their law, right? Um, he also slaughtered thousands of Jews, Jews and sold thousands of them into slavery. And this is all recorded in, in history. It's in First and Second Maccabees. Um, all of this horrible, all these horrible acts by Antioch, Antiochus, though, were really, again, just a foreshadowing as horrific of, as they were of the Antichrist future perversion that he's going to set up there. Uh, just a picture, a small glimpse of how horrific it's really going to be when the Antichrist does the same thing. So Daniel 9, 27 and 12, 11 describe that end time event, which is at the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week, when the Antichrist will set up his throne. He's going to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem that was torn down in AD 70, when the beginning of Mark 13, when Jesus told them, you know, you see these, they're going to be torn down. And, uh, and, and he's going to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, and he's going to declare himself to be God. And that a lot of people are going to be worshiping him. But after pretending to be a peacemaker and making an alliance with Israel, he's going to turn against them, and he's going to massacre them, and he's going to desecrate the temple again for a period of three and a half years. All right, so you get the picture. This is kind of, you see how we're moving from bad things to worse things? You know, now the, the temple's involved as well, and Jews by the thousands are going to be massacred. He's going to make war with all believers, Revelation 13, 7 tells us, killing them for their faith. So during this time, we got to remember, too, that the Antichrist will openly blaspheme God. We see people blaspheming God today, but it's not going to be anything like this. What is one thing that's going to, that prior generations didn't have that we have that's going to make this even more in, in the face of the people? What do you think? Internet. Internet, yeah. Now, I don't know how that's going to hold up during, you know, when the earth starts shaking and quaking and, and all that. You know, I don't know how the infrastructure of all the technology will hold up, but certainly I think at first with the two witnesses and, and all that, the Internet's going to play a big role, or not only the Internet, but um, cable news, you know, that's broadcast all over. Um, he, um, Antiochus erected an idol of Zeus, as I said, in the temple, but the final Antichrist isn't going to have an idol of Zeus. He's going to exalt himself as God, and he's going to demand that all the people of the earth worship him. That's Revelation 13, 7 and 8. And interestingly, like when Charlie read this for us a little bit ago, he said in parentheses, let the reader understand. So these warnings are given to the disciples. I don't think they were just for them. Why would he put, let the readers understand, if it wasn't for believer, believers who were going to be alive at that time? Right? So I, I think that's what that's there for. During this tribulation period, the Jews in particular are going to be assaulted. So Jesus tells them, simple and clear, get out and do it now. Right? I mean, look at verse 14, the end of 14. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Get out immediately is how you could paraphrase that. Um, in order to be safe, they've got to flee Jerusalem with urgency because this impending massacre will be severe. 
for those who don't follow the Antichrist. So you could, you know, abandon and follow the Antichrist, but then you'd be shown that you really weren't of it anyway, right? The word flee there is related to the English word fugitive. You've got to become a fugitive. You've got to get out now. And in light of the imminent threat, the only hope for the residents is to abandon the city and hide in the mountains. Zechariah describes this time in Zechariah 13 and, and tells us that only one-third of the Jewish population living in Jerusalem at this time will survive. So two-thirds are wiped out. Those who escape will come to saving faith, and um, they'll, of course, be refi- refined by the Lord. But Jesus continues to stress the urgency of that future event, and he adds to it in verse 15, let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. There's no time to waste, right? Not even enough time to go inside and get your personal belongings. I can relate to that. We, you know, we got, y'all, I think everybody knows, in 2008, we got pounded by a tornado. Our house got chopped in half. We just sat down to eat dinner, and it started, and my wife reached down. Both dogs were standing there, of course, begging like they do, and and uh, Kit reached down and grabbed one dog and said, we got to get to the basement now. And um, I reached down for the other dog, and he took off. And so she's down in the basement. I'm chasing him around the living room. And right when I bent behind a chair to get him, the first tree hit. And Kit's screaming at this point, you know, leave the stupid dog, get down here. And But I'd had him by then. So as soon as I hit the bottom step, it's like the mother load hit, you know, the whole house I thought was coming down on top of us. Well, it did, really, but, um, uh, you know, I think there were 12 trees inside the house at that point. And, you know, there was no time. You couldn't run and get belongings and secure things and always down so it doesn't blow away. You know, you, we had to get down immediately, and that's what's going to happen here. Jesus says, let no one who's on the housetop, housetop go down or enter his house to take anything out. You know, it's, it's Jesus warned that anyone who happens to be up there taking it easy when they hear about the abomination of desolation should get out now. Uh, danger is increasing with every second. And then he gives a similar urgency in verse 16 where he says, and let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his coat. You know, it would be highly desirable to have your coat, your cloak, during the cold nights, but the danger is, is, is so great that you can't even go back and get it. Just please don't, or you're going to get massacred with them. Those who can't make a quick escape, he warns them, the pregnant women in verse 17, and alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, you know, that's going to be an extremely risky position for them to be in. The inability to move quickly is going to result in the increase of being captured and killed. And then he even adds to it, pray that it doesn't happen in the winter time. Now, you might be thinking like me, well, what's the big deal with winter in Israel? But it does get cold there. It's generally mild, but there are recorded uh, times of snow in Israel. So, You've got to be careful, right? It, and it rains more in the winter as well. The rains, you know, and that what is rain causes in that part of the world, well, I mean, even here too, when you get a bunch all at once, then you've got the chance of flood. Swollen rivers are going to add to the danger. 
And then he continues in verse 19, For in those days there will be such tribulation as, it, as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. That bothered me immensely, to be honest with you. I, I mean, what do you think of, of the greatest devastation of the earth? You know, what do you think? The flood. Yeah, that's what came to my mind. I mean, everything was killed except eight people, right? And, and uh, so there's obviously not everybody killed here because there's still people. So I, I struggle with how can that be more catastrophic than the flood? But that's what it says. It says that, it, you know, since the beginning, there hasn't been this devastation. So, and never will be. So the judgments that mark this time are, are given to us in Revelation I think we'll just stop there and start looking at those then. But think about that. If the devastation of the entire wipeout of the flood wasn't as bad as this, do you think this is going to be bad? You know, um, again, though, the comfort for us as believers, the way I understand it, is we're not going to be here. But I'm sure every one of us here in this room right now, if this were to happen soon, we all know people that would. So should we not be in pursuit of sharing the gospel with them? I I think absolutely. And I think I had an opportunity last night and I blew it. I really blew it. You know, I need to probably go back and open that one up again. It was with, I told you before, I was out with some of my family last night and an opportunity came up and I, I excused it as, oh, well, she wouldn't have understood it anyway. You know, um, we were talking about a brother-in-law of mine that's a Muslim, that he's from Iraq, and his wife, my sister, has passed away. One of the other sisters had him over for dinner the other night, and uh, they were talking. My brother-in-law's mom was there, and she's a Christian, and she started talking to him about the Lord, and he said, well, I believe Jesus was a good man. He was a prophet, da-da-da, but he wasn't God. And my other sister, who was sitting next to me, said... Well, he believes in God, you know, and yeah, but John's mom said, you know, well, do you believe in Jesus? And as I thought about it, as the conversation started unfolding, I I thought, you know, well, she probably has no clue of John 14, 6, right? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me, you know, so it doesn't matter if you believe in God. If you don't believe in Jesus and Jesus being God, then no, not all roads lead to heaven, right? So all of us, I, I was really challenged with this, that we all have people we know in our lives that if this were to happen in the next few weeks, you know, we'd be raptured, but then here they are, you know, and maybe, you know, God would use one of these means that he's talking about here to save them, but what about us now? That's kind of a cop-out, isn't it? Well, I'll just wait one of the 144 will share with them you know, 144,000, or maybe they'll hear that angel, you know, but no, it's our responsibility now to share the gospel with those that he brings along our path. So any questions on that thus far? Kind of a difficult passage, but I just think of Jesus's comfort to the, to the disciples that were with him after this super long day we saw previous to this in in the temple, and now they're on their way back. This is all, by the way, happening real quick. This is a conversation on the Mount of Olives back to Bethany for the night. And um, the guys are there with him, you know, and 
um, Jesus always compassionate and taking the time to explain things to them, I think is, is really uh, a picture of his heart and then how it is there for us even today, our Lord instructing and teaching through the lessons that he taught them. So, so if there's no questions, we can be dismissed. <laughs>